It is a strange thing to be a fan. Being a fan means feeling a one-sided kind of adoration and have no problem with that one-sidedness. And being a fan of music, I think there's something approaching the spiritual in that. The amount of feeling and experience that gets soundtracked by the music we love and the memories that that music holds, the meaning that comes through the repetition, the associations, the feeling of singing along to a favourite song in a crowd of other people who all love the same song, standing there staring at the person on stage who's singing back to you. I don't think it's taking it too far to describe that as somewhat spiritual. For a long time now, I've wanted to discuss lyrics on this show. I keep getting stuck on this incredibly boring question of whether lyrics should be welcome on a poetry podcast. And so I never did anything about it because, because trying to answer the question of whether lyrics are the same as poetry doesn't interest me at all. Setting aside the fact that any attempts to define the limits of poetry on here have ended in nothing but argument and failure, we already know that there are songwriters who are categorised as poets with very little hand-wringing. The obvious examples that come to mind are people like Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell, Paul Kelly, Tori Amos. Yes, Tori Amos. We'd probably all disagree about the names on that list, and we'd probably all have another couple of names we want to add to it. I think that John Danielle, the man behind the long-running, ever-evolving, die-hard fan-attracting band, The Mountain Goats, should be included on that short list of truly significant songwriters. If you know The Mountain Goats, and I know I do have fans who listen, then you already know why. I don't have to say anything more to convince you of this. If you've never heard of the Mountain Goats, my hope is that listening to this, you will start to feel curious. I can imagine you thinking already, how much literary merit could a musician really have? But my hope is that I can open up John's strange, dark, heartbreaking, passionate, beautiful world to you. And if I can do that, I've done my job. I first saw the Mountain Goats in around 2005. I think it was at the Annandale. I think they were touring for the album We Shall All Be Healed. This was the only album of theirs that I'd heard, and I was completely obsessed with it. It was unlike me to go all the way to Sydney just to see a show, especially of a band who none of my friends were into. I don't even remember who I went with. But I do know I got there way too early. And they played the entirety of The Last Waltz on a projector before the band came out. I was mesmerised by that movie. Already I was primed in some kind of readiness for what was going to happen next. And because I was so early, I was right, right up the front. And then all of a sudden, this guy was standing in front of me. I was right under the microphone. 
and they launched into the set and honestly this guy seemed insane we use the phrase on fire pretty casually when people are doing something we admire or when they're doing something with passion or intensity but there was something about this person he seemed to be in some sense genuinely burning I was smitten and I've spent 15 years since then being quietly in love with John and obsessed with the music of the mountain goats A couple of months ago, I found out that one of my favorite people is also a fan of the Mountain Goats. We were talking about it over email, and he pointed out that he lives in pretty much exactly the place where some of my favorite songs are said. And we started talking about his favorite songs, and I realized he also has some fairly specific perspectives that I was dying to hear. This person happens to have a microphone and a podcast of his own. And it just seemed like too perfect an opportunity. So I thought, why not? This is scripture. It's scripture, exactly. I mean, it, it basically is to me. Matthew Buckley Smith of my sister podcast, Slee Ricketts, returns. Um, what What is your, like, when did you start listening to the Mountain Goats? I think about 2000. Sorry, I'm already fucking up your podcast. Yeah, you're, you're, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> man. <laughs> I have a whole, look, look at this. I have highlights. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to mansplain them to you, if that's okay. <laughs> so Matthew sent me a bunch of songs and we whittled the list down to the ones we wanted to talk about. One of them was from the album Get Lonely, which I think is Matthew's favorite. It's probably my favorite as well. And this song, which is called Moon Over Goldsboro, is... In a lot of ways, a typical mountain goat song. It's about a relationship that is doomed. It's probably very near its end. Something is very wrong. The protagonist is alone, moving through a landscape that is as desolate as their inner world. I went down to the gas station for no particular reason. Heard the screams from the high school. It's football season. The second time I saw the Mountain Goats, it was on the Get Lonely tour. It was an almost scary experience. The whole album is so delicate, and John brought all that tension onto the stage. Empty lot the station faces We'll probably be there forever I climbed over the four-foot fence I was trying to sever the tether Moon in the sky Cold as a stone Spend each night In your arms Always wake up alone Let me jump straight to the song that's been sounds like fucking both of us up for the last uh, couple of weeks. I want to hear your theory about this because <laughs> I've been going crazy. Okay, so Moon Over Goldsboro yeah. From Get Lonely, which came out in 2006. I avoided this album for about a year before I finally sat down and listened to it and then didn't stop. 
Oh, for the okay. next year. Yeah. Why did you Why did you avoid it? I I do that. I'm weird. So I was really into Heretic Pride, and I was like, okay. yeah, mm, get lonely. That's sort of a weird title. I don't want mm -hmm. to know what John's doing next. I only like this thing. Yeah. I'm kind of like a you know a kid that only eats like one kind of food, and it's like no, right. but you really will like chocolate. Yeah, you don't want it no. to touch the other food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm very yeah. strange with. With don't let my so... touch my potatoes exactly <laughs> but then i started yeah. listening to get lonely and um it's yeah definitely uh would be, definitely be top three if not my favorite album of the mountain goats but yeah well we'll get to me but what made you choose yeah, yeah, yeah. this song i <laughs> so i had a funny relationship with this album i brought it in on a um a in a moment of nostalgia in i was in athens georgia where i went to college and bought it at the school kids school kid records there on broad is it on broad no it's not on broad it's uh one street up i can't remember what that street's called um uh and i thought it looked like something that had been made in his basement i mean it's like a terror like it doesn't even look like a bad design it looks like the computer selected a literally random piece of clip art to paste on what is ostensibly the cover of this album. And it's made the, the like the, the CD paste itself is like very flimsy cardboard. Uh, you're right. The title feels like a almost feels like a spite title. Yeah. Like the title you're like, fuck this. I'm so like, I'm so depressed and self-indulgent. I'm just going to call this like, you know? So yeah. I, and then I, I, I listened to it and I hated the album the first like, 35 times I listened to it, mm -hmm. but yeah, I but then like, there those. was a stretch when it was, I was like moving and I was got a new job and I was going to grad school and, and changed cars. And, and then like, there was a stretch where it was the only disc in my car for like a year. And so I just listened to it, hating it over and over and over again until then I became obsessed with it. And then I couldn't stop listening to it. And yeah. It is a painful album to like even the first song, especially, which is also like a really like it's a big song for me, but it's almost like perversely painful to listen to. Uh, yes. And it, and like some of the songs are a little like there's some begin to sound sort of catchy. Some begin to have a little bit of like a vague ghost of a drum beat. Some have sort of a melody. Uh, Moon over Goldsboro is on the face of it, one of the more straightforwardly emo songs but then i thought of it for years as a straightforward breakup song but then only more recently i started actually looking at the i mean I, you can hear all the lyrics in the album quite clearly but i hadn't actually looked at them together and then i realized like this story doesn't make any fucking sense and then i went down this weird rabbit hole trying to figure like i came up with all these different theories i think i have the closest I have yet come to a unified theory of what the fuck is happening in the song, but boy, it's hard to pin down. I will, I'm really curious what you think is happening. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think the short version is I have no idea, but it, it sounds like a continuation of the theme that he looks at in Tallahassee, which is this doomed couple who know they're yeah. doomed for some reason, but they're in denial about it and, and kind of like, like a visible denial, like, um he talks about this song has the one of the structural things that i think he does so beautifully everywhere which is yeah, yeah. Uh, a setup which is like a rhyme which is sort of a b c b but the c line 
is really, really long and it creates this delayed payoff when you get back yeah. to that B rhyme. So, um, for example, at one point it goes, frost on the sidewalk, why does a bone try to get close to you again? Which is just like all over the place in terms yeah, yeah. of the meter uh, and always wake up alone. So, I mean, what is happening? They're, these two people live in the same house, but this person, the the male speaker is very, very lonely. Right. So what I initially thought was happening, because he's like walking down to the gas station, he's just dicking around outside. He's, he's like, it's like weirdo behavior. He's like, oh, and then I hop the fence and lay down in the dark. In the weeds. In the, he's always, yeah, no one the, lies like, in the grass in a mountain right. goat song. Everyone's always in, in the, the weeds. <laughs> in the weeds and it's cold he's like oh it's real cold uh and um and then he said uh and then he says i started what did he started to feel better or something and before the attendant turned on the floodlight i lay down in the weeds it was a real cold night i was happy till the overnight attendant switched on the floodlight talking to you under my breath saying things I would never say directly I heard a siren on the highway up ahead kind of wish they'd come and get me frost on the sidewalk yeah yeah so he's like physically miserable but he's sort of just floating around by the gas station and he had like uh uh the, the first song of this album takes place on 15501 which is right by my house. I mean, it's like, it's a, it's not a picturesque highway. It's a little piddling bullshit highway with a bunch of these sort of like crappy, grassy median stretches and, and like gas stations that sound like this one. Um, but then he, he says, uh, it's walking home. I was talking to you under my breath saying things I would never say directly. So like part of the problem in the relationship is he, he there's something he should be bringing up that he's not bringing up. Right. Um, and it's not even just generally that he's like, he's not honest with her or he's not frank with her. He's, he, he's afraid to be straightforward with her, but he's, but there's later we find out he, he says like a, a man with a guy with any kind of courage would maybe stop to think the matter through would maybe hold you still and, and raise the question instead of blindly holding on to you. So the problem is that he's, he, there's something he should bring up with her, but he's not bringing it up. Inst and instead slash because he is holding on to her like clinging to things but then one of the refrains is he he spends all night in her arms and wakes up alone and he's in the, the last lines are spend all night in the company of ghosts always wake up alone and there's this weird ambiguous moment where he says he's walking home to their house try to get close to you again always wake up alone and as I was crossing our doorstep, I hesitated just a moment there. Remembered the day we moved into our small house till the vision got too vivid to bear. But then I thought, like, well, then what the fuck was going on with him 
like the problem in their relationship was he was holding on to her too much and well, she yeah. seemed willing enough to hold on to it so That's, then that seems what? like the so key line which is a key line but then mm. i felt like so so was the problem he held on to her too long until they broke up i think so i think it's i think because that line which is um blindly holding on to you uh-huh. which comes just after raising the question to me i think that that sort of tells a story about like the question is do you still love me but he's not going to ask that the question is do you still love me he's not going to ask that but but it's not that this is this is not a loveless bed of cold sorrow this is we crank up the heat and you giggle and moan this is like a playful like silly sexy like it doesn't seem so look here here are some thoughts i had here's some wild theories i had like one was it's a breakup song but then like the whole lead up to the breakup doesn't really make sense uh and then two was uh so he's sleeping all night in her arms and then waking up alone and then i thought like well this is is this like because a lot of his characters are, you know, very, very working class. They're in like stressful financial uh, straits. And I thought like, is this one of these situations, which like I've been in at different times where you're on such crazily different schedules that you sort of only have these brief periods. And like, by the time he's waking up, she's on her shift already. And then I thought like, well, then why is he dicking around at the gas station? That doesn't make sense. So uh, another thought I had, which I think is the one that makes the most sense is that this is a as are many of the relationship in his relationships in his songs, this is a, a relationship with some serious substance abuse. Yeah. And safe bet. It's a mountain goat song. Safe bet that somebody's right. using, if not both people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think like even the, the, the little, the, the ambiguity of the, um, I heard a siren on the highway up ahead, kind of wish they'd come and get me, could mean a few different things depending on what kind of siren it is, what what's going on with him. And I thought like, well, so here's something where you would, it is easier to just cling to the the warm, giggly comfort of just continuing down this this hole of just doing drugs or whatever with this person. And it's more comfortable not to challenge that. It's more comfortable to stay in that and then just keep going instead of pulling back and saying like, should we, should we try to get like break away from this? Because it's saying that is gonna be very painful for everybody and that may tear them apart. But if you can just keep doing drugs and keep hanging on to her, then they'll stay together. And then I thought, like, well, then why the fuck are they, is he waking up alone now? And the only thing I could come up with the doubt is that she od and she's dead. And a guy with any kind of courage would maybe stop to think the matter through. Maybe hold you still and raise the question instead of blindly holding on to you. But we crank up the heat. You giggle and moan, spend all night in the company of ghosts. Always wake up alone. Let's solve the mystery of this. If it's like death breakup song, <laughs> uh, would you get like yeah? And like why? So who who cares? Like because I've listened to people talk about David Lynch movies. It's like oh, but is the first part a dream or is the second? I feel like I want to shoot both of you. Fuck this! It's <laughs> yeah. Like n- n- you should never excuse this director's work. Like I know people are really into David Lynch. I know you're into David Lynch. I've not seen Twin Peaks. I've heard it's a work of genius. The other movies of his I've seen, and the way I hear people talk about his movies makes me want to say this is bullshit. But uh, you know, whatever. 
Well, uh, but, like, but then now I'm doing this with fucking this song, so I don't know. <laughs> but I, I still want to know why this is one of the ones you included. Like, why this one specifically off Get Lonely? I know you picked Wild Sage as well, and no, in Corolla. And in Corolla, and another one, I think. Monster, New Monster Avenue. New Monster Avenue, yeah. So basically yeah. half the album, but yeah. Well, so partly that's the answer. Partly the answer is my actual choice would be x y and z songs from other albums and then all of get lonely. all of get lonely yes yeah, same right well since we went into the territory of addiction why don't we jump to song for dennis brown which i'm also yeah. fascinated to know why you picked this one so this this song to me is directly about addiction and when yes. john introduces it he talks about like um this is about a guy who spent the late 80s doing what some of us do when we find out about cocaine yeah. Um, you know, he's pretty open about the fact that he was an addict as well. Um, yeah. What does this song mean to you? Uh, it's a song where he tells a story in a, in again, like a, sort of a typically oblique way, but one that is, uh, is moving. And it's, it's a tribute to someone. This, I mean, as with uh, Fall High, the Star High School running back, it's a tribute that does not involve any praise, right? Like it honors this person without in any way eulogizing him. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, it's funny, I read the addiction stuff in a maybe in a sideways way because I don't have the same kind of relationship to it. Like, it's funny, I think of it as being in a way like this is a, this is a, if Moon Over Goldsboro is a, is a song about a w nighttime walk and a breakup that is actually that like is secretly a song about addiction then dennis brown is a song of that's that's uh explicitly about addiction but secretly it's actually about um uh, mortality and um, the human condition on the day that Dennis Brown's lung collapsed, spring rain was misting down on Kingston. This song is from the 2005 album, The Sunset Tree. And down at the harbor, local cops were intercepting an inbound shipment. It's definitely one of John's most directly personal albums, but this song's a bit different. And for a while there it was chaos. As they handcuffed and then roughed up some sailors On the day my lung collapses It's not gonna be much different Yeah, I read something about that. I think it. I think for that to happen, you have to smoke it as crap. Ah, that makes sense, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're not the right people to be talking about the, the no. drug-taking aspects of this, but yeah. The... Are, you, are you like, are you as square as I am? Oh, definitely. More so. Really? Yeah. No, it'd be hard to be more so, but no. uh, yeah. I've, yeah. I've, my only experience with drugs is uh, uh, caffeine, nicotine, and alcohol. Oh, okay. Well, I'm more experienced than you are. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the refrain is on the day my lung collapses we'll see just how much it takes so like yeah yeah in a strange move for john he kind of puts himself right in the middle of the song talks about his own death which he expects one of the most amazing things about the music of the mountain goats is the way that john puts himself 
inside another person's life. And listening back to this, I'm thinking about how this is an alternative version of his own history. Like, this is how it could have gone. So the way I tend to read is like he puts himself in Dennis Brown's shoes and like clearly he has experience with some of this stuff as well, personally, but mostly it's about like whether I'm actually dumpster diving or I'm actually taking crack, my death will be just as lonely and like no matter what, like no, I could be living in the suburbs, you know, with, with a clean life and surrounded by a happy family and I'm still, there's something about an individual human life at its and its expiration that is fundamentally lonely it took all the coke in town to bring down dennis brown on the day my lung collapses we'll see just how much it takes and and it like in that sense we are this is like a uh like the you know the, like the medieval the dance of death like we're all the king holds hands with the pauper like we're all on the hook for that no none of us is above any other in that moment it, it's something that i feel is a common thread in all the songs that you picked but then again it's probably in every single one of his songs <laughs> yeah. right. which is yeah. this this relief in accepting that things are actually as bad as they seem um yeah. in bleed out he says i will never lose hope i haven't lost hope i'm just realistic <laughs> and that's something that I feel like I see so much in your own writing as well. Like just this thing of like going completely against the other narrative, which is it'll all be worth it. There will be a payoff. All this misery will somehow, you know, there's, there's a redemption there. And what John Danielle says is like, no, I hope you die. I hope we both die. If you know The Mountain Goats a little bit, you would probably know this next song. Again, it's the story of a relationship very much on the rocks, but unlike in Moon Over Goldsboro, this time the protagonist is really angry. It's a song people love to cover. People in their bedrooms, people you've heard of. you've never heard of I hope that our few remaining friends give up on trying to save us I hope we come up with a fail-safe plot piss off the some few that forgave us and when he does it live John can't even really sing it properly because the audience just takes over title is never mentioned anywhere in the lyrics, but it says it all. This relationship is so broken, so toxic, so definitely headed for catastrophe. You could really only call it one thing. No children. It's like, it's a compassionate nihilism. It's like a hum yes. humane nihilism. 
Yes. Um, although in No Children, this is his least humane moment, probably. I mean, I hope it stays dark forever. Yeah, yeah. I hope the worst isn't over. Yeah. Um, again, the ABCB thing, I hope you blink before I do. I hope I never get sober. And yes. it's it just... And truly, it, like, one of the best refrains in pop music. Does that... Uh, this, this was a song I sang to my daughters when they were babies. Um <laughs> really i'd say a lot like the thing is like you, you sing songs every night over and over and over again for like hundreds and hundreds of nights it gets boring like you know and the baby's not going to sleep and you just like you run through your repertoire and then mm. you start to say like what other songs do i know <laughs> and this one was sort of pretty and they, like there were definitely other songs i should not have sung them like i sang bonnie prince billy's uh i see a darkness as well mm. um but yeah this was probably the worst <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah. a pretty song. It's like it's like a, it's got a catchy tune. You know? Yeah, it's it sounds like the triumphant climax to a film. Like yes, this is this is the moment. And it's where framed that way. Together. It's framed as like it's a it's a litany of hopes that are of course uh, as as bleak as they could possibly be. I hope I cut myself shaving tomorrow. I hope it bleeds all day long. Our friends say it's darkest before the sun rises. We're pretty sure they're all wrong. I hope it stays dark forever. I hope the worst isn't over. And I hope you blink before yeah. I do. So, I I is, is that the level on which you relate to the song, just in terms of the bleakness? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I... It's just on one hand, it's, uh, it, it's almost Wildean in its relentless, compressed wit. Like it's just like it is one way of reading it would be as just like a song every line of which is a perfect one-liner um but yeah it's also you know in the larger motion of the album it is a portrait of this extremely self-destructive couple like mutually self-destructive couple mm. and this is sort of like a an anti-love like it's an anthem really it's an anthem to the like they're doomed uh, you know, inverted relationship. Like it, it has the, I read um, the J.K. Wiesman novel, La Ba, uh, which is all about Satanism. <laughs> like it's like a pornographic 19th century French novel about Satanism. That's like reading it, Ryan was like, oh, you have to read it. It's all about Satanism. And I was like, yeah, but it's not, I'm sure it's not really, I'm sure like Satanism is sort of like a metaphor. No, it's just like straight head, like, <laughs> holy shit. And like this has that same sort of like inversion of values. Uh, it's like it's sort of. I mean, technically, I guess you would say it's a it's an inverted Rubiat stanza, but it also has this internal rhyme. the The refrain is "In my life," I, and that "In my life" is maybe the true stroke of, stroke of genius in it. Like that frames the the whole stanza in a way that it would be much weaker without that. But in my life, I hope I lie and tell everyone you were a good wife. I hope you die. I hope we both die. Mm. Uh, and it, it, because of the, the like multiple intersection of all of the sounds in it, I think it's just, it's this sort of perfect poison dart uh, in the, in your skull. In my life, I hope I lie. And tell everyone you were a good wife and I hope you die. I hope we both die. Yeah, yeah I, I, I just, I think I just 
when I hear it, it rings true to a certain kind of spite and despair and self-hatred that I have experienced. And it's rousing. It's like a, it's like a, a, a fight song for giving up. The, the end is this sort of like a um, bri bridge into the refrain. Um, I am drowning. There's no sign of land. You're coming down with me. And lovely. I hope you die. But right before that, there's this moment where the whole conceit of the poem or the song starts to collapse a little bit. Like the whole poem is, I hope the exact opposite of what you're supposed to hope. I want the worst possible thing to happen. I want to like, it's all negation. It's all like pure, brutal, ironic negation, um, which is also like, meant sincerely in this sort of horrible way but then at the end he says and i hope when you think of me years down the line you can't find one good thing to say and i and i'd hope that if i found the strength to walk out you'd stay the hell out of my way so it starts with that same negation right like i hope there's no you know you can't think of it a single good thing to say to me but that's also imagining a future where they're not together anymore where they've somehow gotten past this and then the next line is like, it seems to be the only line that is actually a straightforward, like positive hope. It's framed within this horrible conflict, but I hope that if I found the strength to walk out, you'd stay the hell out of my way. Like maybe there would be a way out and then we, it collapses again. But there is like having that little moment where the edge starts to peel up a little bit, I think makes the whole thing more convincing than if Absolutely. it were just a like a rigorous performance of perversity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, I don't know, it's like, I've never read any interviews where John's talked about this kind of part of his life, but um, it feels completely real. Several days the visitors were here. We saw them turn down, we watched them disappear. Talked about the days they'd said were sure to come. Had a hard time believing. Why don't we move on to the last one, which is Genesis 33, which yeah. is from Life of the World to Come. This album I just avoided completely for like a decade because I was like, all the songs are named after Bible verses, as Matthew has discussed over on Slee Ricketts brilliantly. He is no fan of organized religion, having had plenty of experience with it when he was younger. So I was surprised when he insisted that we tackle this next song from the album The Life of the World to Come. That one was released in 2009. It's got to be one of the least accessible, although it did get me through a particularly tough winter a couple of years ago. Each song is named after a Bible verse, and this one, Genesis 33, is as resistant to interpretation as the rest of them. I'm interested as to your relationship to it because you have said publicly you're not Christian anymore, but you used to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Danielle, interestingly, I mean, I I assume he's an atheist. No. But, oh, he's not. No, he's a Christian. Oh, because he's an addict. And so, yeah, addicts are yeah. almost always, not all of them, but but like addicts are very often. Yeah, because he, he talks about, the way he talks about 
God and Christianity. He talks about, I mean, he, I know he's like ultra, ultra progressive, but he talks about it not dismissively. Yeah, no, he's, he's like full on, like Jesus is my guy type of person. I totally might understandable. Be, I might be yeah. overstating that, and also if no, I just no, no, ruined no. the mountain goes for you, I'm so no, sorry. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Didn't ruin it. I mean, didn't didn't ruin it. I there is a part of me. It's very unfair of me. It's like one of my more. I was going to say one of my more unattractive qualities, but there's so many to choose from. Uh, I, you know, I mean, it's, it unfairly reminds me of the old axiom that there no there are no atheists in foxholes, which is not true. And like, there's like a whole group in the army that calls themselves atheists and foxholes um <laughs> now to like, so like let's get out of the fucking chaplain thing like or bring us a chaplain who can read us some i don't know Camus. uh but yeah it makes there's part of it that makes me sad not that i have like a especially a coherent penetrating vision of the universe but there's something that makes me sad about really uh, i'm just gonna dig my hole deeper never mind but yeah uh, yeah. All right. I think I know what the, you what you're about to say, though. It's like somebody who's who's like this smart and talented, giving up and and going back to Christianity. It's just a bit. Which is yeah. Which is like Christianity is like very rich, and of course, like if you are actually a Christian, sorry, like if you are a Christian and you do Christianity the way it says, you are an unbelievably good person. Like you, I mean, like if you are actually a honest to God practicing Christian. I mean, assuming that you take Paul's advice and let go of all the, like, all the Leviticus, because please don't apply Leviticus to reality. Um, like, assuming that you take Paul's advice and do that, then you're, like, you live a truly saintly life. And that's amazing. And, like, like we should all honor that. And those people should be models for us. But I think, yeah, there is, like, if I'm honest with myself, there is part of it. I get it's, I don't even look down on people because I, I, I'm filled with contempt for myself as well. But like, there's something that makes me a little bit sad about people who are very smart, who take, whether it's because of an addiction or because of a disease or whatever, they, they, Christianity, you know, or, or vague religiosity has some it's hard to say it's cause and effect, but has some relationship to that kind of struggle in their lives. It just makes me kind of sad. And I, yeah, I, which is why I don't bring it up because I don't have anything smart to say about it. And I'm an idiot myself, but yeah, I don't know. I remember seeing you, my tongue struck dumb when you first came here from wherever it was you came from. to find out too much about John Danielle the person this is my strange way of being a fan I don't really want to know but I did pick up in an interview somewhere that 
John does have faith. Listening to his music for years, I'd assumed, and you would have to forgive me for this, given the general desolation in the lyrics, that he was very definitely not into God. By the time this came up in conversation, the facts had become kind of warped in my mind and I ended up misrepresenting things to Matthew. What John actually said in an interview with The New Yorker last year was this. Mercy is the greatest thing that humans are capable of. And that means understanding people who are noble, damaged, broken. Damaged people do damaging things. They hurt people. To be able to see those people as whole, as people who didn't just wake up one morning and decide to be all damaged, that's what makes... Well, I didn't expect to be going here, but that brings you closer to God. Because that's who God is. That's what God does every day. Understanding you as you. He sees you, the bad parts and the good parts, and feels the same way about you. For me, I don't even have to fully believe. Nobody up there? Strong possibility. But the idea is so real. When you and I talk about God, we create him. And that's right there, hanging in the air between us. He's there. He's real in that space. The God that I understand is all of our better characteristics personified. For several hours we lay there, last ones of our kind. Harder days coming, maybe. I don't mind. Sounds kind of dumb when I say it, but it's true. I would do anything for you. Open up the promise of the day. What was your original interpretation of this one? Because you were saying to me by email that you kind of had a discovery yeah. that your interpretation was a bit different. Totally wrong. Like <laughs> radically wrong. Right. So this song's called Genesis 30, 30 colon three. So it's the uh, uh, um, ch- chapter 30, verse three. Uh, all of the song, as you said, all of the songs on this album are named by, for Bible verses. One of the effects that has, in addition to putting off people like Alice who aren't all that into reading the Bible, um, is that it makes it impossible to remember what any of the fucking songs are called. Because it's just like a jumble of Bible books and numbers. Yeah. And so I, it was like a song, it was an album I had in my car. And so like I, as with uh, Get Lonely, I didn't know the title, the track titles anyway, because um, I was just listening to it over and over in my car when I wasn't stopping to look at the album notes. Uh, but this was a song I always thought was really pretty. And again, it's one that if you just listen to it absently, it's almost a pop folk cliche because um, the refrain is uh, I will do what you ask me to do because of how I feel about you which could be like Jonas Brothers pablum like it could be almost just like meaningless um, I mean it's catchy but it, like it, it, it could it could easily be under different circumstances it could easily be a line that means nothing except like generic pop sentiment here um, but there is, again, this weird implied story. So I actually think it's probably useful to start with the actual verse 30, uh, colon 30. I assumed, having read this, you know, having read Genesis much earlier than coming back and reading it later, 
I had always assumed I knew what this passage was in Genesis. I was totally wrong. It's in a totally different chapter. Um, so the actual pa actual passage, chapter 30, verse three is, so she said, she being Rachel, so she said, here is my slave girl, Bilhah, sleep with her and let her give birth on my, and that's definitely not, sleep with her is definitely not how it was said in the original. <laughs> sleep with her and let her give birth on my knees. Through her, then I too shall have children. So this is like a custom, and the same with like sometimes brothers were expected to marry like widows. Uh, you know, if like, basically like if it's your slave, you can give her to your husband and then like that counts as your kid if you wanted to. Um, and so she does this. He says about this in like, I, I don't know how you feel, but like I've listened to a few of his pre, I've never seen him live, but I've listened to a few of his like pre-song lectures. I, I tend to think he's not a great performer in part because he he wants to talk a whole lot before every song and in part because he's written too many songs. Like he writes so many fucking songs that he often like, it's clear that he doesn't remember them that well. <laughs> like he often like will kind of flub lines, you know? So at any rate, um, he, he gives the whole talk about this, basically saying that he, he both found this to be like a very beautiful, strange kind of love story, this relationship between these two women, but also then like had all these misgivings because it's obviously it takes place in the context of slavery. Um, and slavery meaning maybe slightly different things than it did at various other times. But um, he's telling the story of this weird, complicated relationship between Rachel and Bilha. Listen, listening to the actual lyrics in the song, I don't think that it makes that reading make sense at all. I think that makes no sense in this song. No, I can't I see that. I always assumed, I always assumed that the whole song was sung beginning to end by Noah's wife. I will do anything for you. Open up the promise of the day. Drive the dark things away. I will do what you ask me to do. Because of how I feel about you. The song goes on, open up the doors to the tent, wonder where the good times went. I will do what you ask me to do because of how I feel about you. It goes on, I saw his little face contract as his eyes met light. Try to imagine anything so bright. You see it, you only see it once, then it steals into the dawn and then it's gone forever. For several hours we lay here, last ones of our kind. Harder days coming maybe, I don't mind. Sounds kind of dumb when I say it, but it's true. I would do anything for you. Open up the promise of the day, drive the dark things away. I will do what you ask me to do because of how I feel about you. What I always thought the song was about was Noah's wife. The visitors are either just some people coming through town. I mean, it sounds vaguely like the um uh the angels coming to Sodom, but that's a whole different story. So I don't even know what that would be. Um, but I always it was like some people coming to talk to Noah, which probably he interpreted as angels, and she Red is like, eh, these are some guys. Like maybe like the Duke and the Dauphin from Huckleberry Finn. Like, well, they maybe they say they're important. Like, who knows what they are? Like, maybe they're just like drifters. Um, and they have a wild story that is partly what I mean. Like, often what people would do traveling town to town is like come up with some wild story that was such big news that people had to take them in and pay them and give them, feed, you know, feed them to, so they could hear the news. Which is a kind like it's why Odysseus gets tested when he goes to um, the name of the island Nausicaa lives on, which is I think the one with all that that's all vowels like ayaya something island but he gets tested because he comes in saying like i'm odysseus come home after 20 years and they're like nah prove it <laughs> because like like a lot of guys could say that um so these these guys come in and they have this wild story what i always assumed the story was was there's going to be a flood 
there's going to be a flood. And her response is, talked about the days they said we're sure to come, had a hard time believing. Like, yeah, okay, could be, could be, guys. Well, anyway, have a nice trip. And then she turns to him and she says, I've all, like, you've always been, you know, you're this powerful man, you're strong, you, you have this sort of impressive look and you've taken good care of me and, like, I've looked up to you. But then... Like his response is he really believes them. And like, not only does he believe them, like we're going to build an ark. Like if you read the Noah story and Noah's wrong, holy shit. This is like a very sad story of a man totally losing his mind, destroying his family's wealth, destroying their reputation, dragging his wife down this insane hole. And like her response is, okay, I love you. So like, I'll, I'll do this with you. For several hours we lay there, last ones of our kind Harder days coming, maybe, I don't mind Sounds kind of dumb when I say it, but it's true I would do anything for you Maybe, like, why this song and No Children and Moon Over Goldsboro speak to me in some ways is that, like, I've also, like, the same way I have definitely been the person who is not good for okay when people have met I've, I've said it before like when people meet joanna they like me more like when they realize that's my wife they like me more the opposite is true for her like when people meet me and realize like i'm her husband they like her less so i think like i, I have definitely been and i've definitely been that role for other people i dated and I've also dated, like, I, I dated a few drunks, like, honest to God. And, like, I'm very familiar with that feeling of, like, uh, if I were responsible or even, like, if I were a better person for you, I would try to put some resistance up. But, like, also, especially at the time, like, we're, like, attractive 20-somethings and, like, you're just like getting drunk and having a wild time. And I guess like, we'll just keep doing this for a while. Um, so I, yeah, I, I kind of relate to all sides. Like I relate to the wild eyed Noah being like, we're going to build an ark. And I relate to, <laughs> yeah. Like I, I just kind of relate to everybody in, in these, these weird overlapping, you know, quantum superimposed stories. That is the weird thing about listening to this music is like, I also find myself relating to so many aspects of it without having had any, um, experiences that even come close uh, but my experiences yeah. don't come close they're just, uh, they're no, just sure. analogous right sure, sure, sure. But i mean like they're they're ana- like that's the thing it's like that's what that's what good storytelling is it's like yeah you can relate to it because you have had an analogous experience even if it's not anything like the one he's describing yeah so last question what what was it like to go back and listen to these again uh I was I was impressed by his storytelling in a way that I hadn't bothered to be before. Mm-hmm. Like I think I'd always appreciated his smart lyrics, but I had not really taken in how good he was at telling stories so economically. Uh, it also made me feel sad and old, you know, um, in- inevitably. And I was reminded of. So one, I think the only big 
the only big point I've been able to identify so far on which you and Joanna seriously diverge is the mountain goats. Right. She can't stand the mountain goats. I think for her, it's also partly because of an association with like the guys who were really into them in a particular context. Yeah, fair. Uh, but yeah, it made me feel old and more lonely. I don't know. Yeah, like, I don't know, like, listening to the mountain goats, like, enjoying them doesn't, you don't feel like part of a crowd. I don't feel, it doesn't make me feel like part of a crowd or community or, like, connected to other people. It makes me feel like he understands what it's like to be a human being in certain ways that apply to me, and I'm really moved and impressed by that, but it definitely only makes me feel more alone. I'm sorry that you ended up feeling like that. No, no. I mean, what are you going to do? It's, you know, <laughs> it's probably true for other things in, in a less uh, a, a less aesthetically impressive way. Mm. Well, that what, was kinda... so what, what about you? Why did you want to do this episode? Well, I mean, I've always wanted to do an episode about lyrics and okay. to kind of like to acknowledge that like some lyricists are much, much better than poets at doing the work that poets do. And yeah. I saw, I've, you know, getting ready for this, I found all kinds of things talking about what a great lyricist John is and, you know, really putting him into this, um, framing him as like really the best lyricist of his generation, which I think is probably true. And, or yeah, it's yeah. hard to think of who would be the other, like who yeah. would you put up against him? Yeah, and and thinking about his work in the context of, okay, well, if I'm going to talk about lyrics just the one time, mm -hmm. just talk about the mountain goats, I realized just how phenomenal his work is on, at a, you know, try, try not to like mash that word poetic onto other stuff, but I think, I think it, it is better than a lot of poetry that I read oh, man. all the yeah. time. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I've been trying to write some songs with a friend of mine and it's, it's amazing once you actually try to do that, like you get a whole new appreciation for every single songwriter. But yeah, I keep saying to this friend, like, God, I wish I could write like John. <laughs> it's like, yeah, mm -hmm. like the best lyricist of, of like modern times yeah all right alice calm the fuck down but yeah 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 like i mean that's the thing is he also like we didn't even talk about meter like his meter is wild like he yeah. he writes in like standard like mixed ballad stanzas frequently like by iambic you know four, four three four three a b e x b or whatever uh a b c b sometimes um uh or uh sometimes sometimes he writes in couplets but uh, and then but he also writes in like amphibrax which is insane. Like he writes in Amphorex, like he writes in like Dr. Seuss meter. Um, he also writes in Anapest. He also writes uh, in dance music is a great example of this as is um, high school running back. Uh, he writes in what I want to call, like I was talking to Elijah about meter the other day and he talked about speech. Was, was he that our conversation where he talked about speech stress? Was that, yeah. Like, the meter basically like what he's doing with some of these lines is what rappers do. Like he's mm -hmm. doing the accentual, the sprung rhythm, accentual meter thing 
where the the line fits the measure because of how he says it. Yes. But it doesn't have an intrinsic meter. Yeah, which is what you learn when you try to, like, just before we started, I was just trying to see if I could play a bit of Moon Over Goldsboro. And you just... Oh. Yeah, it's do just you, like... Do you, play, do you play an instrument? Uh, I play guitar and piano both very badly, but okay. I can I can entertain myself um, yeah, yeah. trying to pretend that I can do mountain goats. But yeah, it's just like... He, only he can do it. Again, in my weird way of being a fan, and this kind of goes for everything Mountain Goats. I delay listening to the albums. There are albums that I haven't listened to, like I'm saving them for prison or something. When I found out that John had written books, I didn't read them for a long time. I'm very glad I have now. The first one, Wolf in White Van, is difficult, but it is brilliantly executed. The second one, Universal Harvester, is probably just difficult. Towards the end of Wolf in White Van, John writes this. This is from the point of view of the main character. At my best, I figure I'm only an okay writer. Any good effects I have are things I got from people who are only considered good writers by young men who need to escape. I have my moments. If we believe that fiction tells us as much or maybe more about a writer than a memoir does, we can assume that this is how John thinks about his own writing. I don't agree. I think he's much, much better than okay. At his best, I think he's one of the best. I don't know anything about scripture. This'll do. Showroom filled with fabulous prizes. 